Shalom, brothers and sisters. I'm Brother Sid of the Commandment Keepers Church. We have a detailed lesson prepared for our brothers and sisters internationally. The title of today's lesson is Salvation is Submission. Salvation is Submission. Today we will learn that salvation and submission are inseparable. We will highlight some of the erroneous beliefs plaguing our people concerning salvation. Brothers and sisters, what I've discovered is faith has become merely an intellectual exercise instead of a calling for men and women to surrender unto Christ. So the topic today will be the Lordship of Christ. It'll be submission to his Lordship. Let's go to Second Peter, brothers and sisters. We're going to go to 2 Peter, the third chapter in the 18th verse. 2 Peter, the third chapter in the 18th verse reads, But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. I'm going to read that again, brothers and sisters. Please listen to how Peter is breaking this down here. 2 Peter 3 and 18 reads, But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, according to the author, the Saviorhood and the Lordship of Christ are inseparable. Did you hear how he structured that? Listen to it again. 2 Peter 3 and 18 reads, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. So, brothers and sisters, the scripture teaches us that he's both Lord and Savior, or he's neither. You noticed how it called Christ Lord and Savior. It said you needed to grow in the knowledge of him as Lord and Savior, right? Now, guess what, brothers and sisters? It talks about growing in grace. This growth doesn't come without one's acknowledgement of Christ as Lord. Okay? Let's read that again. 2 Peter, the third chapter in the 18th verse reads, But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, one cannot be redeemed by accepting him as Savior without yielding to him as Lord. See, Peter refers to him as Lord and Savior. We know what Savior means, right? But do you know what Lord is? Many of us, we accept him as Savior, right? Anytime something goes wrong, when, when you lose your job or the bills aren't being paid or you find out you have cancer, what happens? You pull Christ out like a spare tire to use him as a fire escape from the hellfire. And then once he's delivered you, you throw him back in the truck, never to be seen again until the next time you need him to deliver you. See, so we know Savior, but what about Lord? What about that part? Okay. Lord means what, brothers and sisters? We understand that in the Western world, here in Babylon, in America, we don't use that term, right? The only time we use that term is for what? Landlord, which means what? 
owner of the land. So that means Lord means owner. It means master. It means ruler. So a landlord means you don't own the land. Someone else owns it. You're just a tenant, right? So when it refers to Christ as Lord and Savior, it's saying he's not only the owner, he's not only the ruler or master, but he is also the Savior, the Messiah, the Hamashiach, right? You see that, brothers and sisters? So we're going to deal with that today. Let's go to Acts. We're going to go to Acts, the second chapter, and the 36th verse. Acts 2 and 36 reads, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God had made the same Christ, whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. I'm going to read that again. Acts 2 and 36 reads, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God had made that same Christ, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. So as we see, brothers and sisters, the apostle Peter did not proclaim Christ as Savior. Only he preached him as Christ and Lord. Do you see that? Let me read it again. Acts, the second chapter in the 36th verse reads, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Christ whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. See? So Peter didn't only proclaim him as Savior. He proclaimed him as Lord and Christ, which is the anointed one, the Messiah, he who came to save. You see that, brothers and sisters? The title Lord implies a master, a leader, and someone whom the speaker submits. If you don't submit, you can't call him Lord. Why? Because Lord means he is the owner, which means he does the dictating, right? So do you see what's going on here, brothers and sisters? The author magnifies Israel's failure to recognize the Lordship of Christ. Let me read that again. Acts, the second chapter in the 36th verse reads, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Christ, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. See? So historically, brothers and sisters, if you, if you study the Bible, if you study the Bible from a historical context, Israel, people of color, the blacks, Hispanics, and natives, we obey when it's convenient. And ignore his claims when they're inconvenient. That is not Lord, okay? Lord means owner. It means dictator. It means master. It means leader. It means ruler. It means do what I say. <laughs> See? So we're going to deal with that today, brothers and sisters, because many times we just skim through the Bible carelessly. I don't know how many times I've heard a Christian say, yeah, he's my, you know, my personal Lord and Savior. Is he? Why are you eating pork then? Why are you celebrating Christmas if he's Lord? Because that same Lord said, don't celebrate Christmas. That same Lord said, don't celebrate Easter. He said, celebrate Passover. Okay. That same Lord said, observe the Sabbath. That same Lord. Is he Lord and Savior or is he Savior only? Because what we'll find today, brothers and sisters, is that if he's not Lord and Savior, he's neither. You can't you can't split that up and say, well, nah, I accept him as Savior, but not as Lord. You don't have that right. 
You don't have the right to accept him as Savior, but not as Lord. It, it's, it's inseparable. How do we know? Let us read it again. Acts, the second chapter in the 36th verse reads, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Christ whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Showing you there's a separation because he said Lord and Christ. Which tells you that those two words have separate meanings. Now you have to know that in Hebrew, a name, brothers and sisters, describe the characteristics of a thing. So they didn't just name people to name people or give things names to give things names. Right? Jacob, Yaiquab, means supplanter. Why? Because he supplanted his brother, right? Got the birthright and the blessing. Supplanter. Then his name was changed to Israel. Go look in history. What transpires after the name change? Why is the Most High changing names? Why did he change Abraham from Abram to Abraham? Why did he change Sarah from Sarai to Sarah? If it's just a name. Because now you have a different function. The name represents a function in the Hebrew. That's our Hebrew custom. You didn't just name people to name them. Brothers and sisters, you didn't just name things to name things. It has a, 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 a particular function with a particular purpose. And that's where you get a name from. Everything that's named in the Bible. See, and this is why it's very important to study the etymology of words in the Bible. Not only in the, in the Hebrew, but also in the Greek. Because why? The English is very tricky. It's very tricky. And sometimes they put words in there to imply things that it does not mean, brothers and sisters. So we've had two scriptures that we started off in 2 Peter 3 and 18. Also, Acts the second chapter, the 36th verse, where, where Peter, which is speaking in both these texts, is referring to Christ as what? Lord and Savior. Not only Savior, not only Lord, but Lord in conjunction with his Saviorhood, right? Yes, that's that's Peter in Acts. We understand that Luke penned the record, but the person speaking in the 36th verse in the second chapter of Acts is Peter. You know, the one that Christ built his church on, the one that he made the head under him. See, so if the head, the, the rock that he built the church on is calling him Lord and Savior, who am I? Who are you to say anything else? So we're going to deal with that today, brothers and sisters. Have you fully submitted to his lordship? We understand Calvary. We understand the saviorhood. But what about the lordship? Is he lord? And we're not talking about lip service here. We're talking about action. Is there evidence to his lordship in your life, in my life? We're going to deal with that today, brothers and sisters. Because what I found is, what I've discovered is, yes, our people find out they're Israel. At this point, it can't be denied. It is the truth. It cannot be denied at all. But we reject the Lordship. See, we'll accept him as a, a fire escape, a, a get out of hell free card. But then when he comes with instruction, then when he comes with reproof, then when he comes with correction, we act as if we don't hear. So let's deal with that today, brothers and sisters. Let's go to Romans, brothers and sisters. Let's go to, to Paul's record here. We're going to go to Romans, um, the 10th chapter, 
in the ninth verse. Romans 10 and 9 reads, That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Christ, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Brothers and sisters, I need you to closely examine the declaration of Paul. Romans 10 and 9 reads, That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Christ, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So the text teaches us that in order for salvation to be complete, we must acknowledge the Lordship of Christ. It tells you you must acknowledge Christ. You must confess Christ as Lord. Okay. Confess with thy mouth the Lord Christ. That means acknowledge his Lordship. That's what that means. And as we go through the, the scriptures today, you'll notice that nowhere does the New Testament say that a person will be saved by accepting Christ Merely as Savior. It's not there, brothers and sisters. See? Now, a Christian will use this right here, right? They'll say, well, listen, the only thing I have to say is, you know, I believe, you know, Christ is Lord. Confess with my mouth, right? Wrong. And see, there's something in our flesh that always tries to take the easy route. Tries to do the least amount. That we can get by with. Let me do the least amount that I can. And still get by. So a Christian will misinterpret this. They will butcher this scripture. They butcher all of Romans. And uh, really. They butcher all of Paul's records. So they should probably not even be dealing with Paul's records. Go read the gospel. Stick there first. Before you go into some harder. You know some harder understandings. Let me read that again. Romans 10 and 9, and it reads, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Christ, and shalt believe in thy heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Now look at this, brothers and sisters, because it tells you you have to confess Christ or acknowledge Christ as Lord and believe that he's the Messiah, that he was raised from the dead. See, it's two there. It's We're seeing two things here. In order for it to be complete, you have to acknowledge him as Lord and believe he's the Messiah, the one that, that, that have come to be saved. Not one or the other. Or not, you know, I just believe he died on the cross for my sins. Well, I mean, yeah. You can find that in the Roman catacombs. That's history. That's, that's secular history. Okay? But we're showing you that what? Without acknowledging Christ as Lord, you cannot be saved according to Paul. The same Paul that all Christians try to run, you know, run up under. So we're going to deal with it today, brothers and sisters. We're going to deal with it today. Why? Because what we found, what we've discovered is that salvation is submission. You cannot divide Christ as Savior from Christ as Lord, as owner. Now, as we've said, you can, listen, if you study the Bible and you maybe used to be a Christian, you can look at this text and already know how a Christian will manipulate this text. They'll say, well, listen, <laughs> only thing I have to do is confess that Christ is Lord. That's it. I don't have to follow no laws. The only thing I have to do is say, Christ or Jesus, you are Lord of my life. 
Is that right? Precept upon precept, line upon line. Let us prove that that would be a misunderstanding. That would be disingenuous. Let's go to Matthew, brothers and sisters. See, we love the gospel. We love, these are my favorite four books. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because there's a wealth of information there. But Israelites even, Israelites don't want, don't read the gospel either. They want to stick in the Torah and Tanakh. The only thing they want to do, most of them, most of us, is just deal with the Old Testament. And then you get the Christians. And what do they do? They go straight to Corinthians. They go straight to Ephesians. They go straight to Romans. They go all those, the epistles. So it appears that the four books of the gospel, you know, you know, Christ's life, those books are neglected. And those are the most important books, more important than Revelations, more important than Genesis, more important than the Apographer that we hold dear. Why do we go to Matthew 7 and 21 to prove to you that the text previous, which was Romans 10 and 9, is not saying that only thing I have to do is, is enunciate <laughs> with my mouth that Christ is Lord. Right? You're not rightfully dividing the word. How do we know? We're here at Matthew, the 7th chapter in the 21st verse. And it reads, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. So here Christ indicates that mere words are not enough to authenticate true subjugation. According to the author, submission to Christ is the evidence of genuine subjection to his lordship. Not the words coming out of your mouth. Let us read that again. Matthew 7 and 21 read, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. So according to the text, it's not the confession of him as Lord, but the obedience to his Lordship. You see that, brothers and sisters? Here we see that the literature of Matthew yields the eternal ramifications for the ever so common lip service. I, I, I don't know a person who believes in the Bible. I don't know a Christian alive <laughs> that would, would deny Christ as Lord with their mouth. See, that's just, we just pick up things and just say things. Yeah, he's my personal Lord and Savior. Really? Is he? We, these are the things that we just learn from, from hearing other, you know, other people in the church saying, he's my Lord and Savior. What does Lord mean, brother? <laughs> it means I can do what I want. <laughs> it means, you know, I can break the law. Christ died for my sins to, you know, to do what I want. You're not rightfully dividing the word. And brothers and sisters, this is going to be one of our more important lessons for those of us who actually believe in the Messiah, believe in Christ. Okay? Let us show you. Let us show you, according to the Bible, what Christ wants, what the Most High wants, is obedience. That's why he said, you know, not everyone who calls me Lord is going to enter into that kingdom. Only he that... The operative word is do or doeth the will of my father. So there's something you have to do, not something you have to say. 
See, this is why Christians in particular don't go into the gospel because Christ was straightforward. He wasn't playing games. See, Paul can be interpreted a million different ways if you are a baby in the truth. Because Paul was on that level. Paul was on that level where most people wrestle with the scriptures to their own destruction. They don't know what Paul is talking about. If Paul was living today, he would he, he was from the tribe of Benjamin. He would have been a, what you call, he would be from the West Indies. He would be Jamaican. And you can listen to how the Jamaicans, those from the West Indies, talk today and not understand them. Because it, it, it appears, you know... That sometimes they talk backwards according to how we talk. It's almost backwards. Paul was a Benjamite. He was from the West. You know, he wasn't from the West Indies, obviously. He was an Israelite. But if he was living today, he would be considered a Jamaican. We just wanted to show you that confession of the mouth is not going to work. Not alone. How do we know? Christ said it himself. Let us show you what he wants, brothers and sisters. Christ wants obedience. The Most High wants obedience. Let's go to Luke. Let's go to Luke, brothers and sisters. Let us show you what Christ is looking for, what the Most High is looking for. We're going to go to, let's see. Let's go to Luke, the eighth chapter. And let's start at verse 22. Luke 8 and 22 reads... Now it came to pass on a certain day that he went into a ship with his disciples and he said unto them, let us go over unto the other side of the lake. And they launched forth. But as they sailed, he fell asleep and there came down a storm of wind on the lake and they were filled with water and were in jeopardy. And they came unto him and awoke him, saying, master, master, we perish. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging water, and they ceased, and there was a calm. Brothers and sisters, what do we see here? What do we see here? We see that even the wind and the water, we see that nature is obedient to Christ. Even the storms, the boisterous winds, right? The waters of the sea respond in obedience to the voice of the Messiah. Right? Let's jump down, brothers and sisters. Let's go to... Because we're showing you what he's looking for, brothers and sisters. Jump to Luke 8 and 26, brothers and sisters. And it reads, And they arrived at the country of the Gardarines, which is over against Galilee. <clears throat> Excuse me. And when he went forth to land, there met him out of the city a certain man, which had devils long time, and wear no clothes, neither abode in any house but in tombs. When he saw Christ, he cried out and fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with thee, Christ, thou Son of God most high? I beseech you. I beseech thee, torment me not. Verse 29 reads, For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Let me read that again. Luke 8 and 29 reads, For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. 
For oftentimes it had caught him and he was kept bound with chains and in fetters. And he broke the bands and was driven out, excuse me, and was driven of the devil into the wilderness. Verse 30 reads, And Christ asked him, saying, What is thy name? And he said, Legion, because many devils were entered into him. And they besought him that he would not command them to go into the deep. So they begged him not to cast them out, according to Luke 8 and 31. Luke 8 and 32 reads, And there was and there was there and heard of many swine feeding on the mountain. And they besought him that he would suffer them to enter into them. And he suffered them. Then went the devils out of the man and entered into the swine. And the herd ran violently down a steep place into the lake and were choked. Why did we go here? What did you get from that particular story, brothers and sisters? Even the demons, the devils respond to Christ. Even they obey Christ. Okay? So just in this, you know, just in this chapter, we've seen the wind. We've seen the water. We've seen demons and devils obey Christ. You see that? So even nature, even spirits, evil spirits, Respond to a command from the Messiah. What about you and I? What about man? What does man do? When I say man, that's male and female. How does man respond to Christ's commands? See? So Christ is like, man, listen. (laughs) The wind listens to me. The water responds to me. The evil spirits even respond in obedience to me. What about man? See? We're showing you what he's looking for. See, they understood he was Lord. Lord means authority. Lord means owner. It means master. He is the master. He is the ruler. He is the owner. And even the wind understood that. Even the devils Understood that. Let's go to Luke 6. Just a few chapters before. We're going to go to Luke, the 6th chapter, the 46th through the 49th verse, brothers and sisters. We're at Luke 6 and 46, and it reads, And why call ye me Lord, Lord? And do not the things which I say. I'm going to read that again. Luke 6 and 46 reads. And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? So the Messiah teaches us that authentic subjugation to his lordship is connected with your submission. See, he's saying if I'm your Lord... Then you'll obey what I tell you. Which means what? The flip side is if you don't obey me, it's not I'm not your Lord. It's clear because you know a man or woman by their fruits, by their actions, not by what they're saying. Because there's these things called lies. (laughs) Okay. So it's, it's, it's key here because according to the text, only obedience to Christ can express his lordship in our lives. 
Let me read that again, brothers and sisters. We're at Luke, the 6th chapter and the 46th verse. And it reads, And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. Verse 48 reads, He is like a man which built an house and dig deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. Verse 49 reads, But he that heareth and doeth not is like a man that without a foundation built a house upon the earth, against which the stream did beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. So what is he teaching here? He's teaching that to call him Lord and not obey him is evidence of a glaring inconsistency. Now remember, brothers and sisters, Christ was a carpenter. Okay? He was a carpenter. So that means he knew a little bit about foundations. Right? Let me read 40... Let's read uh, 47. Luke 46... Excuse me, Luke 6 and 47. Verse 47 reads, Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and do them, I will show you to whom he is like. He is like a man which built a house and dig deep and laid the foundation upon a rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it. For it was founded upon a rock. Verse 49 reads, But he that heareth and doeth not is like a man that without a foundation built a house upon the earth, against which the stream did beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. So, brothers and sisters, in this text, Christ proposes in idea of a spiritual foundation upon which to build and it's him he is the rock brothers and sisters he is the rock let's go to Acts brothers and sisters we're going to Acts the 16th chapter and the 31st verse <clears throat> Acts 16 and 31 reads, And they said, Believe on the Lord Christ, and thou shalt be saved and thy house. Verse 31 again, it reads, And they said, Believe on the Lord Christ, and thou shalt be saved and thy house. So in these verses, brothers and sisters, what do we see here? In these verses, the author does what? The author declares the Messiah to be both Lord and Christ. The text highlights the contractual obligations in order to receive salvation. Salvation demands submission to Christ as Lord or Master of our lives. Making what? True salvation 
conditional. Right? Do you see that, brothers and sisters? Do you see that? He said you have to believe on Christ as Lord in order to be saved. To believe on means submit to. That's what that means. To believe on the Lord Christ means to submit to, brothers and sisters. Okay? Let's go to Psalms 24. Let's go to the Old Testament. We've been in the New Testament for most of the, the lesson. We're going to go to Psalms, the 24th chapter, the 4th and 5th verse. Psalms 24 and 4 reads, He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Brothers and sisters, this speaks of a man or woman who is both pure in both their actions, which is defined by their hands, and their intentions, which is defined by their heart, right? Let us read that again. Psalms 24 and 4 reads, He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who have not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So, brothers and sisters, as we see in verse 4, to have clean hands is equivalent to being upright. And a pure heart means not merely the one whose external conduct is upright, but whose heart is pure. You see this? The psalmist teaches that clean hands alone would not suffice unless they were connected with the pure heart. You see that, brothers and sisters? Let me read that again. Psalms 24 and 4 reads, He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So according to the psalmist, in order to be a recipient of true salvation, there are contractual obligations. What are they? The text says, he that have clean hands and a pure heart. Not one or the other, but both, brothers and sisters. Let's go to Acts, the third chapter in the 19th verse. Acts 3 and 19, and it reads, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the time of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. I'm going to read that again, brothers and sisters. Listen closely to the words that the author uses. Acts 3 and 19 reads, Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of the refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. So what are we learning here? 
You must make Christ Lord of your life and submit to his authority to be saved. How do we know? Let us read it again. Acts 3 and 19 reads, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. So brothers and sisters, a person's rehabilitated mind must be accompanied by corresponding actions. That word repent means to change direction. See, most people, they taught us in church that repent means apologize and say sorry. But that's, that's not true. When you look at the definition from repent, it means to change directions. How do we know? Let us read that again. Acts 3 and 19 reads, Repent ye therefore and be converted. So according to the text, repentance or reformation is a requirement for continued justification. You're not converted unless you repent. And you haven't repented unless you're converted. The text is teaching us that. According to the author, repentance is not only contrition, excuse me, is not only contritional acknowledgement, but conductual rehabilitation. See? They've taught us that repentance means apologizing. That's not the case. Not in the Bible. Repentance means to not only change your mind, but your actions. So somebody, you know, step on your toe, you know, every day at, at church and all that. And they say sorry, but they do it on purpose every day. That's not repenting, okay? The, repentance and confession are, are, are not the same thing, brothers and sisters. They're not. Go look at the, you know, look at the definition for those words. Repent means to change direction. Confess means to say, you know, admit wrong or admit guilt. Two different things. So there's no way that you can repent, brothers and sisters, if you haven't reformed your conduct. You're just, you're just saying words. That's it. In order to have your sins blotted out, you must repent and be converted. Which means acknowledge you were wrong, acknowledge that God's way is better than yours, and go the path that he has directed you on. You can apologize and say sorry all that you want, but if you continue on that same path and don't change directions, you are not forgiven. You are not converted. You're just using words. Let us show you, brothers and sisters. Let us show you the steps of repentance. We're going to go to Psalms 119 and 11. 119 verse 11. And then we're going to jump to 35 through 37. Psalms 119 and 11 reads, Thy word have I hid in mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. I'll read that again. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Jump to verse 35 through 37, brothers and sisters. Psalms 119 and 35 reads, Make me to go in the path of thy commandments, for therein do I delight. 
Incline my heart unto thy testimonies and not to covetousness. Turn away my eyes from beholding vanity and quicken thou me in the way. So automatically, brothers and sisters, starting at verse 11, we see what? That now he's receptive of God's word. He said, your words have I put in my heart. And then when we jump to verse 35, so that means first acknowledging, repentance is first acknowledging that his way is better than yours. And then look at it. Look at Psalms 119 and 35. Make me to go in the path of thy commandments, for therein do I delight. So now we see a change in direction, a change. In, we see a change in direction. See, this is repentance. Now I'm going on a different path, right? Examine verse 36, Psalms 119 and 36, and it reads, Incline my heart unto thy testimonies and not to covetousness. Turn away my eyes from beholding vanity and quicken thou me in the way. Jump to verse 59 because we're showing you the process of repentance, brothers and sisters. Psalms 119 and 59, and it reads, I thought on my ways and turned my feet unto thy testimonies. See, this is repentance, brothers and sisters. I'm going to read it again. Psalms 119 and 59 reads, I thought on my ways and turned my feet unto thy testimonies. Brothers and sisters, the psalmist implies that he was going in a different direction because you wouldn't need to turn your feet unto the testimonies if they were already progressing to the testimonies. Do you see that? So here is that change in direction. He said, I realize that your way is right. Mine is wrong. And I, I reconfigured. I modified my destination. Jump to Psalms 119 and 101, brothers and sisters. Psalms 119 and 101 reads, I have refrained my feet from every evil way that I might keep thy word. Once again, Psalms 119 and 101 reads, I have refrained my feet from every evil way that I might keep thy word. So look at this, brothers and sisters. <laughs> I mean, these are the perfect scriptures to break down repentance. Because why? In 59, brothers and sisters, he said, turn my feet onto the path that you have chosen. In verse 101, he said, I will stay on that path that you have chosen. See, that's why he said, I have not refrained my, excuse me, I have refrained my feet. So, yes, in verse 59, I acknowledged I turned unto the path of righteousness and then I kept my feet from going back to what I just repented from. Because if we continue to do the same thing over and over and over and, and just come and say, I'm sorry, but there's really no reformation. That's not repentance, brothers and sisters. And see, Christians say, well, no, you don't need to repent because they understand that. I heard a Christian say that repentance is works. That's what they say. I heard this in my own ears. That no, you don't need to repent. You just need to confess Christ as, as Savior. That's it. Because they know the definition of repentance is to change. They know this. Don't let them, don't let them fool you. 
brothers and sisters, okay? Follows brothers and sisters. We're going to Luke. We're going to Luke 3, brothers and sisters. We're at Luke, the third chapter, in the eighth verse. Look at this, brothers and sisters. Luke 3 and 8 reads, Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able to, I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Brothers and sisters, John's subtle wording is important. Look at what he says. Luke 3 and 8 reads, Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance. Repentance is an inward, inward change of disposition. And proceeding from that inward change is what? Inevitable behavioral changes. This is why he said bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. See? So John tells us not to underestimate the importance of our private life. Why? Because the outward life expresses the inward life. Let us read it again. Luke 3 and 8 reads, bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance and begin not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Every tree therefore which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. So what's going on here, brothers and sisters? Here John confronts Israel's practical denial of the fruits of repentance, as though one's attitude about sin could be turned while their actions remain unaffected. You see that? Repentance is not words. That's what he said, brothers and sisters. Repentance is not words. Let's read it again. Luke 3 and 8 reads, Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham unto our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Verse 9 reads, And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth forth not good fruit, is hewn down and cast into the fire. So according to John, repentance bereft of change is not authentic, brothers and sisters, okay? He said, bring forth fruit. Let me see actions, right, of repentance. So this is key. Repentance means change right so how can you have repented of your sins how if you have not changed if you have not submitted brothers and sisters 
We have to really be, we have to be real here. We have to be clear here with ourselves. Because a lot of us have been taught to lie to ourselves. And say, well, yeah, you know, I believe in Christ as Lord and Savior, but I only use him when I need him to save me. Not when he's trying to tell me something I don't agree with. Not when he says, put away my first fruits. No. <laughs> Not when he says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Not when he says, don't be looking at, uh, you know, racy videos and, and, and you know, and um, you know, pornographic things and all that. Not when he says, give this up. Not when he says, give that up. Not when he says, give him up. Not when he says, give her up. That I'm not doing. Brothers and sisters, I, uh, I beseech you, give Christ the keys. If there's any key to any room in your life that you have not relinquished that key to, he is not Lord. A lot of us have that one room, that dark room in the back of the house that we're unwilling to relinquish that key. And that means what? That means Christ is not Lord. Because Lord means owner. And that means the owner controls every move. When If you have a dog, right? Or you have a cat or something like that. An animal. That dog or cat eats when you feed it. That dog or cat go gets a trim when you take it. That dog or cat goes outside to use the bathroom when you take it. You see, that's what owner means. That means I control every part of your life. And anything else is insufficient, brothers and sisters. Anything else is insufficient. So we have to get there because why? The title of today's lesson is Salvation is Submission. You cannot be saved. You cannot have salvation if Christ is not Lord and Savior. See? Too many of us are just trying to use the Savior part. Yeah, I'm going to use him as a fire escape to get out of hell. But then when it comes to him giving me directions, I'm going to pass on that part. <laughs> I'm a pass. Thank you. See? Let's go to Psalms, brothers and sisters. We're going to Psalms, the 7th chapter, the 11th and 12th verse. Listen closely, please. Psalms 7 and 11 reads, God judgeth the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he turn not, he will wet his sword. He hath bent his bow and made it ready. Verse 13 reads, He hath also prepared for him the instruments of death. He hath ordained his arrows against the persecutors. Mm. Brothers and sisters, the writer points out that if a person does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. He will bend and string his bow. How do we know this is talking about repentance? Listen to it closely. Psalms 7 and 11 through 11 and 12 reads, God judgeth the righteous and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he turn not, if he turn not, if he turn not, he will wet his sword. 
He hath bent his bow and made it ready. So it's telling you if he turn not, if he repent not, that see, that's clear. It's clear there that repentance is to turn, to change direction. So according to the text, wickedness will not go unnoticed by the Most High God. Why do we know? How do we know? Let's read it again. Psalm 7 and 11 reads, God judgeth the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he turn not, he will, he will wet his sword. He hath bent his bow and made, made it ready. So the text is teaching us that he will sharpen his sword in preparation to inflicting punishment. Here we read consequences to the wicked if they persevere in the course which they are pursuing. See, and I, I definitely, you know, encourage Gentiles to understand this. Okay, because this is what's coming. Israel also, because we know, you know, Israel gets it first, whatever it may be. We get judgment first, we get rulership also first, get an opportunity for both. But this is this is dual here. Gentile governments and, and, and all that, they should see this because it's telling you that you can talk about, uh, you know, slavery being a long time ago and, you know, all that stuff. But the Bible is telling you God is angry with the wicked every day. And if he don't turn around, he's going to sharpen his sword. Same thing for Israelites. Okay. The more we continue to go down that path. He's just sharpening his blade. It says he had bent his bow and made it ready. He's putting, he's sharpening the arrows in his quiver. He's ready to pull back and let go. So why are we saying this? We're telling you that, listen, don't procrastinate to repent. Because every single day that goes by, the Most High is angry. See, he's telling you, listen, if you don't repent, which means I don't care about your apology. I care about your obedience. I care about your reformation. I care about your transformation. Without that, listen, I'm going to sharpen my sword. Let's go to 1 John, brothers and sisters. Let's go to 1 John. We're here at 1 John chapter 3. We're going to read verse 19 through 21. 1 John 3 and 19 reads, And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence Towards God. So we're going to read this again. But brothers and sisters. What you see here is. The focus is on the conviction of sin. According to the author. True salvation results in a person being more. Sensitive to sin. Look at this. 1 John 3 and 20 reads. For if our heart condemn us. God is greater than our heart. And knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence towards God. So that word confidence towards God means arrogance towards God. 
So what, what are we looking at here? According to the text, a lack of penitence is evidence of our distance from Christ. How do we know? Because it's telling you if your heart is condemned when you're doing the wrong thing, you feel guilty and all that, then that lets you know that Christ is close to your heart. Because you can feel it. You can hear it. Right? But if you can just continue to sin and, and not feel any condemnation in your heart, then you don't fear the most high. In fact, you're proven that you're distant from not only the most high, but the Messiah. See? So according to the author, feeling guilty is not a bad thing. The most high is the one who gave us a conscience, brothers and sisters. This was intended by the Most High to drive us to him that we might receive forgiveness. So he's telling you clearly in verse 20 and 21, if your heart condemn you when you're doing wrong, when you've done wrong, God is greater than your heart. You're not being ruled by your heart. But if your heart condemn you not and you can continue to just track and do dirt all through life and feel no way about it, there's no fear of God there. So that's dangerous. That's dangerous. When you see a person just dealing with flagrant sin time after time again, with no remorse, no contrition, you better stay clear of that person because judgment is on the way. See, a good person, a person that's actually following the Most High, we all sin, brothers and sisters, all of us, including, you know, me included. But when you slip or when you do something, maybe even unknowingly, the Holy Spirit, he does, she does what? She sends a signal to your heart, to your mind, to your, through your conscience. And you feel guilty. See? And that's, and that's why. So you can come for and ask for forgiveness. Confess your sin, ask for forgiveness. Follows, brothers and sisters. We're going to Psalms, the 29th chapter, and the second verse. This entire chapter is about the voice of the Most High, brothers and sisters, and how nature responds to the voice of the Most High. I need you to closely examine how all of creation responds to the voice of the Creator. Psalms 29 and 2 reads, Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thundereth. The Lord is upon many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaketh the cedars. Yeah, the Lord breaketh the cedars of Lebanon. Brothers and sisters, this psalm reveals to us all the ways David describes God's voice. See, the dominant image in this psalm is that of what? Of the mighty voice of the Most High God. What are we seeing here? Just in those few texts, according to Psalm 29, God's voice controls stormy waters. It's powerful. It's majestic. It breaks trees. Why? Because it causes lightning. It makes deserts shake. It strips forests. That's what this is showing us here. Let's read it again. We're going to read Psalms 29 and 2 through 9. 
Psalms 29 and 2 reads, Give unto the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thundereth. The Lord is upon many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaketh the cedars. Yeah, the Lord breaketh the cedars of Lebanon. He maketh them also to skip like a calf. Lebanon and Syrian like a young unicorn. Verse 7 reads, The voice of the Lord divideth the flames. Think about that. God's voice divideth the flames. How do we know this? Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace? How were they, you know, how were they in this furnace and were not singed at all? Came out unharmed at all? Because God's voice. God talked to the flames and to the flames to produce no heat towards these young Hebrew boys. You see this? It's telling you, brothers and sisters, how powerful his voice is. How all the earth, all of nature responds to the sound of his voice. He said, let there be light. Let there be this. Let there be that. His voice is what created everything you see, brothers and sisters. You see this? So here we're seeing that God speaks through his people, excuse me, God speaks to his people through the elements of nature. At the voice of the Most High, tornadoes strike. Great trees and old trees in the path of a storm are toppled over. You see that, brothers and sisters? Now, why, why do we go here? Because we just got done in John. What was that? First John, brothers and sisters, the third chapter, the 19th through the 21st verse, saying, listen, if you if your heart is not condemned when you're doing wrong, something is very off. If you could just do sin and then go grab a beer after that. If you could just go, you know, deal with all types of transgressions, all types of iniquity, and then operate, you know, just fine. Something is wrong because why? We just read in Psalms 29 how everything else God created responds to his voice. Let us show you the importance. Let's go to John. The Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 27 through 29. John 10 and 27 reads, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Let's read that again. John 10 and 27 reads, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Brothers and sisters, the term my sheep implies ownership, which means lordship. Brothers and sisters. Now, the question is, why do they follow me or why do they follow him? Because that which is owned has no right of will contrary to the will of the owner. When he says my sheep, that's showing ownership. That's showing lordship. Because why? Lord means owner. Look at it again, brothers and sisters. I need you to examine the three distinctive marks of the Most High's followers. John 10 and 27 reads, My sheep 
hear my voice, number one, and I know them, number two, and they follow me, number three. John 10 and 28 reads, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. So look at this, brothers and sisters. We learn a, a myriad of things in these three short verses. And number one is, According to the author, how we respond to the voice of the Most High determines, or excuse me, how we respond to the voice of the Messiah determines whose we are. Who do you belong to? Who is your master? Who is your Lord? How do we know? Because he said, my sheep know my voice. My sheep know my voice and they follow me. So in this illustration, according to the Apostle John, the sheepfold represents a place of security. So if we say, listen, I don't hear God, I don't hear from Christ, it's clear that you're not his sheep. I didn't say that, the Bible said that. Christ said this. So don't, you know, don't shoot the messenger. If you don't hear his voice, you are not part of his flock. So it's either two things, either you're not a part of his flock, or you hear him, but you don't want to hear it. Because we do that too. We understand clearly our conscience, the Most High is speaking to us through the Holy Spirit, through our conscience. And we ignore it like we, like we don't even hear it. When we're hearing clearly. We're hearing clearly, we don't want to hear it though. So those are the two things. For a person, especially who follows the law supposedly and reads the Bible, to say, I, you know, I don't hear from Christ. I don't hear from the Most High. Either two things are going on here. Either you're not, his, you're not in his flock or you hear him, but you want to ignore what you're hearing. You only hear, you have what they call selective hearing. So you hear about the part that says we're the God's chosen people. You hear about the part that says we're going to rule over Gentiles. You hear about all that. But when it comes to you, when it comes to me, we don't hear. Dangerous, brothers and sisters. Very dangerous. Brothers and sisters, the topic today is the lordship of Christ. Submission to his lordship. Not only acceptance of the saviorhood, but what? Submission to the Lordship. Be honest with yourself, brothers and sisters. Why? Because I'm here to do what? The Most High have sent me on a mission to make sure that our people no longer are deceived. Or no longer deceiving themselves. Why? Because I'm going to stand before the Most High one day. So all of us will stand before the Most High. Okay? And this is what you will be judged on. And I want our brothers and sisters to be make to make an educated decision about their actions, understanding we have the answer key here. This is an open book test, brothers and sisters. He's saying, listen, these are the things, son. These are the things, my daughter, that I'm going to judge you on. OK. Now, you can be mad at the test. You can you can think the test, the, the test is not you know fair and all that. But this is what you're going to be tested on. OK. So it would behoove you to do what? To make sure in the areas of your testing, you get it together. I get it together. 
we get it together. Trust the words that are coming out of the book. Don't trust me. Don't trust T.D. Jakes. Don't trust Joe Osteen. Don't trust these guys who are saying you don't have to submit. Don't trust these guys who say, well, you know, as long as I don't eat pork and all that. That is not submitting to the Lordship of Christ. That's submitting to the law. And what I've discovered, brothers and sisters, is our people will readily, you know, submit to the law before we submit to Christ. They're not the same. The law and Christ are different because why? We're following the letter of the law. Christ brought the spirit of the law, which are the principles. He expanded the law. What is the difference? What is the difference between the letter and the spirit? The letter of the law says, as our parents told us, don't risk, don't take candy from strangers. All right. The spirit of the law is saying, don't take anything from strangers. So when your mommy and daddy, when your, when your mama and daddy told you, listen, don't talk to, don't take candy from strangers. And then you come back with, with McDonald's from a stranger. And then they're like, what, what, what is this? And you're like, well, you said don't take candy from a stranger. See, you're trying to go by the letter of the law. You understood what your parents were saying. Clearly, you understood it. But you, you found a way around it by going through the letter. See, this is what lawyers do, brothers and sisters. So that's why, this is exactly why we went into slavery. Because we tried to parch words. We tried to, we needed to learn, or we are learning right now, the intent behind the law. What was the intended purpose? See, let me give you an example. The letter of the law says, excuse me, if, if a man fornicate with another man's wife, he should be put to death. The spirit of the law is if you look after a woman to lust after her, you've already committed fornication and adultery in your heart. See, that was the intended purpose when he wrote that. Not that you can look at women's behinds and, you know, and all this stuff. And as long as as long as you don't do nothing, you're OK. No, Christ is saying, I'm going to catch it on the heart level. The fact that you're even looking and thinking like that is a sin. Because the only thing you need is an opportunity. And if you had the opportunity, you would do it. See? Today's lesson is, I mean, it's time, brothers and sisters. It's time for us to grow spiritually. It's time for us to take the next step. And what I fear, brothers and sisters, is that we've gotten lackadaisical. Saying, you know what? I know that Christ died on the cross for my sins. We went into all this Old Testament stuff and all that. Yeah. yeah you can't deny that. No one in a right mind could deny that Christ was the Messiah. Because it was written all throughout the manuscript. But what about the Lord? Are you recognizing him as Lord? Are you recognizing him as owner? Are we recognizing him as ruler? If not, that is what we need to do. Quickly. Why? Because the Bible told you that God is angry with the wicked every single day. Every day. I'm going to show you. Let's go to James, brothers and sisters. New Testament, standing in the New Testament here. James, the first chapter, the 22nd verse. And it reads, But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only deceiving your own selves. 
So according to the text, it's not about how good you hear. It's about how good you respond to what you hear. See? According to the author, your presence on this broadcast is not sufficient alone. How do we know? James, the first chapter, the 22nd verse, and it reads, But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is likened unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth the manner of man he was. So to hear the word and not do it is to not really hear it at all. That's what the text is teaching us, brothers and sisters. And it says, let me read that again. Let's break that down. It says, James chapter 1 and 23 reads, For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in the glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. What is this saying? A man who hears the word and does nothing is, is, is unhealthy. Why? Because, brothers and sisters, when, when you and I look in the mirror, if you're healthy, you don't look in the mirror to just look in it. You look in the mirror to do something. Right? Any person who just looks in the mirror just to look at it, something is wrong. This is what the text is saying. You're like a man who just looks in the mirror, and then as soon as he walks away, he forget what he saw. If you go into the Bible, it's saying, what's the point in reading the Bible and not doing it? I mean, what point is there? What point is there looking in the mirror if you're not going to do anything? I look in the mirror, I got, you know, toothpaste all on my lips and all that. And I just look at it and say, all right, I'm out. <laughs> I'm out. I'm not going to do anything about the toothpaste all around the crust and all that, right? See, James was breaking it down on a level in which we could understand it. What I've discovered is hearing God's word is not the problem for most of us. Applying it to our lives is the problem. Brothers and sisters. Let us show you. Let's go to Luke, the sixth chapter in the 44th verse. We're going to read Luke 44 through 46. The 44th verse in the sixth chapter of Luke reads, According to Christ, excuse me, <clears throat> excuse me. Luke 6 and 44, brothers and sisters. For every tree is known by his own fruit. For of thorns men do not gather figs, nor of bramble bush gather they grapes. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaketh. So, brothers and sisters, according to Christ, fruit is always, always a true reflection of one's character. If you examine it closely, these two agricultural examples teach that one will produce 
what they are and not something different. How do we know? I need you to really examine the 44th verse. Luke 6 and 44 reads, For every tree is known by his own fruit. For of thorns men do not gather figs, nor of a bramble bush do they gather gather grapes. So he's saying you don't get figs from thorns. You're not going to get grapes from a bramble bush. You see this? So according to the text, a person's works produce the fruits in the heart is then known by what it produces. How do we know? Let me read 45 again. Luke 6 and 45 reads, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. An evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. Verse 46 reads, And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say. So the text teaches us that failure to obey what Christ commands proves our profession is not genuine. If a person says they accept the Most High, but they do not accept what the Most High says do, then they have not actually accepted the Most High. Okay? Christ said, what? Why call me Lord and not do what I say? You just, you just, you just taking up air. You just taking up oxygen. If a person says they accept the Most High, but they do not accept what the Most High says do, then they have not actually accepted the Most High. Let's go to Matthew 13 and 44, brothers and sisters. Matthew 13 and 44 through 46. Matthew 13 and 44 reads, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in a field. The which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for the joy thereof, goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Now again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he has found one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Brothers and sisters, here we see the focus is on the value of the kingdom. According to these parables, there is a transaction made to purchase salvation, but it's not with money or good works. If you look at it closely, the text implies that sacrifice is required to gain kingdom citizenship. Let's read it again. Matthew 13 and 44 reads, Again, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. So there's a transaction, right? There's a sacrifice there, right? Let's read verse 45. Matthew 13 and 45 reads, Again, 
The kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls. Brothers and sisters, Christ begins verse 45 by saying again, which directly ties the meaning of this parable to the previous one. This text features what? What do we hear? The text features a merchant in search of fine pearls. Let me read that again. Matthew 13 and 45 reads again. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. So what are we seeing? We're seeing that according to these parables, you have to give something up in order to gain. These parables, if you look at them closely, they share common themes. A treasure of great value, a discovery of great joy, a purchase of a great sacrifice. So, as he's telling us about the kingdom, he's giving us parables. Both of the the both of the people in these in these parables had to sell something. They had to sacrifice something. They had to give up something. And that's the same here. What we have to do, we have to. Sacrifice. We have to sacrifice our rights. Become a servant. Become a slave unto the Most High. Unto Christ. I'm going to show you. The topic of today's lesson is Christ's Lordship. Not His Saviorhood. That's clear. But His Lordship. Lord means what? Owner. That's where you get land Lord. So are you operating as if Christ is your owner? Let us show you. Let the Bible show you, brothers and sisters. We're at 1 Corinthians, the 6th chapter, the 19th and 20th verses. 1 Corinthians 6 and 19 reads, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. And in your spirit. Which are God's. Brothers and sisters. In these texts. Paul addresses the subject. Of what? Ownership. See? What we're reading here is that the blood of Christ was the purchase price. So here we're reading a modification in the rights of ownership. Let us show you. The 19th verse in the 6th chapter of 1 Corinthians reads, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in ye, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. For ye were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. See, this whole, this stanza here is about ownership, brothers and sisters. The Most High is the proprietor of our bodies and therefore owns the rights to our bodies. Paul is using this illustration to emphasize to us that what? Because we have been purchased we are under obligation to the one who has made that purchase. You see that, brothers and sisters? That's why I said you are not your own. You were bought with a price. If you were bought with a price, that means you belong to somebody. 
There's an owner, which means Lord. Who paid the price? See? Christians taught us, me included, they taught me also, that yeah, we can be covered in his blood, we can accept his blood, but you know, I don't really need to do anything he says though, because he already died for my sins. So I can just keep sinning and his blood is so strong that it'll just cover purpose sin. You better read the Bible again. In the New Testament where it says, once you've rejected Christ, once you've turned back into the world, after he cleansed you and continue to do wrong, there's no more sacrifice for sin. Christ is not going to get up there and die again for your pork chop sandwich. For your inability to stop lusting. For your inability to stop fornicating. For your inability to stop getting drunk and high. He's not getting on the cross for that, okay? Let's go to 1 Corinthians 7 and 22. 1 Corinthians 7 and 22 reads... For he that is called in the Lord, being a servant, is the Lord's free man. Likewise, also he that is called being free is Christ's servant. Ye are, ye are bought with a price. Be not ye the servants of men. Brethren, let every man wherein he is called thereby abide with the Most High God. So look at this. Let's read it again. The 22nd verse in the 7th chapter in the 1st book of Corinthians reads, For he that is called in the Lord, being a servant, is the Lord's free man. Likewise, also he that is called being free is Christ's servant. Brothers and sisters, freedom or slavery is not the issue. The issue is rather that the Lord owns us and that we are his slaves. You see that? This is the believer's emancipation from sin. It's telling you that, listen, you've been freed from sin to become a servant of God. Okay? Here Paul directs our attention to the incredible debt that we owe the Redeemer. In verse 23, when he says, ye are bought with a price. Be not ye servants of men. Be a servant of the Most High God. Okay? Do you see that, brothers and sisters? Let us show you. What is, when he says being made free, we're the Lord's free man. What, what does this mean? The precept is Romans 6 and 22, brothers and sisters. Romans 6 and 22 reads, But now being made free from sin and becoming servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. Mm. I'll read that again. Romans 6 and 22 reads, But now being made free from sin and becoming servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. Here Paul clearly teaches that our eternal life depends not only on justification, but also sanctification. Okay? So here we read the, the renunciation of sin and the pursuit of holiness as the reasonable service subsequent to our redemption. See, how do we know? Let, look at this one more time, brothers and sisters. Verse 22 reads, But now being made free from sin, that's justification, and become servants to God. You see that, brothers and sisters? 
So he's saying, listen, I didn't free you from sin to do what you want to do, okay? I freed you from sin to become a servant to me. So notice, ultimately, we don't free ourselves. It says we have been freed. I'll read that one once again. Romans 6 and 22, and it reads, But now, being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. So the text implies that we don't make ourselves slaves of God. We have been enslaved to God. When did we get enslaved to God? When he freed us from sin. So according to the text, redemption always comes with subsequent requirements. When he saves you, when he redeems you, there's, you know, there needs to be some level of reciprocation that comes subsequent to that. He's not freeing you to go do what you want to do. Let us prove that. Historically speaking, okay? So anytime you need deliverance, when something is going on, understand that he's not doing it for you. He's doing it for himself. He wants something from you. And let's prove that. Let's go all the way back. Let's go to Exodus, brothers and sisters. Nine and one. Remember, we said that according to that text, redemption always comes with requirements. Let's see. Exodus nine and one reads. Then the Lord said unto Moses, go in unto Pharaoh and tell him, thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. Let my people go that they may serve me. Let my people go. Why? So they can serve me. So liberation requires service. See that? The Torah teaches us that we're saved to serve. He told Moses to go to Pharaoh. Listen, unhand my children. Why? So they can come serve me. See? Our liberation, according to the text, was conditional. And here we read of the implied contingency. You see that, brothers and sisters? He didn't free us from Egypt to do what we want to do. He had a plan, a purpose, a predestination. So God never saves you for you. You see that? And this is why a lot of us never get delivered. This is exactly why. Because he doesn't believe that you'll serve him afterwards. So as long as you're unwilling to yield, as long as you're unwilling to serve, you stay under the bondage of, you know, whatever you're under bondage of. Whether that's fornication, that's alcohol, that's, you know, whatever. You stay under that bondage. Why? Because he knows you're not going to serve. If the Most High knows you're going to serve, he's telling you, listen, serve me greater than you serve those other pharaohs in your life. If he knew you would do that, <laughs> chains would be, shackles would be smashed right now. Serve me the same way you serve those other pharaohs in your life. Those other things that are running you wild. That have dominion over you. That are exerting your energy. That same energy you give in there. To that job. To that drug addiction. To that girl. To that brother. Give that same energy to me. And see what happens. 
He said, dare me, trust me, tempt me, test me. See, brothers and sisters, if you serve the Most High the same way you serve those other things out there, you will, you will find the favor of God. I can assure you this. You will find the favor of God, brothers and sisters. Here it is. We're learning. We're learning about the Most High. The Most High, according to Hebrews, excuse me, according to Exodus 9 and 1. He told Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go so they can serve me. So he delivered us for service, especially black people. Okay, when I say black, I'm talking about natives, Hispanics and Negroes. We are under the thumb of the Roman rulership, the fourth beast, the Edomites. He's only going to he's only going to redeem us or he's only going to save us if he knows that we're going to serve him. He's not going to save you from the white man so you can go get high. He's not going to save you from the white man and the governments that they, you know, so you can go get drunk. He's not going to save you from the, you know, the governments of the white man so you can go fornicate. That's not going to happen. You're going to be part of those that are destroyed. Let's go to 2 Corinthians, brothers and sisters. We're at 2 Corinthians, the 5th chapter, the 14th and 15th verses. Follow us, please. Look at this closely. One of my, one of my all-time favorite scriptures, brothers and sisters. 2 Corinthians 5 and 14 reads, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all. That they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. So let me read that again, just in case you missed it. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them. You see that? So according to the text, Christ's sacrifice puts us under obligation to live our lives in submission to God's will. It's clear that true salvation requires service. See, the text teaches us to respond to Christ's sacrifice with what? With service. Let me read that again. 2 Corinthians 5 and 15. Actually, let me start at 14. The 14th verse reads, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them. So, it's, so, so brothers and sisters, it's clear. Loving Christ should put restrictions on us. It tells you that if Christ died for us and we died, that means he took our place. So on that cross was actually you. It was actually Sid up on that cross. It was actually Brother Christopher up on that cross. It was actually Brother Corey up on that cross. It was Brother, uh, excuse me, Sister Samantha on that cross. Or Sister Susie on that cross. See? 
So he took your place where you should be, where you should have been. So he's saying, listen, now that you're dead, because I died for you, you live like me. We've swapped places now, right? That's why he said, anything you ask the Father in my name, see, why? He's saying, don't come in your name. You're dead. You already died. I died for you. You're already dead. So now you're supposed to live as me. Come in my name. See? So we're obligated. What we're seeing here is obligatory. Our big brother died for us. The least we could do is serve him no matter what he asks us to do. Otherwise, you just desecrate his death. You just diminish the, you know, diminish his death. Saying, yeah, you died for me and all that, but, you know, I still got this, this key in my pocket for that last room up in my house that I don't, I'm not going to let you near. As long as you still are holding on to keys, to rooms in your life, you, you, you're in danger of hellfire. You endanger brothers and sisters. Please, I beseech you. I beg you, brethren. Those that one or two rooms that you're unwilling to relinquish, you have to now. Because otherwise it's an idol. If you submit everything else in your life to the most high except for one thing, that shows you the grave importance of that one thing. And that's called, guess what? Idolatry. Because you were unwilling to relinquish everything else, but not this. Why? It's dangerous, brothers and sisters. And this is a this is a heavy lesson. Why? Because it's a lesson of self-reflection. And I understand that our people, probably nobody, but the Bible tells you that Israel, they don't like these kind of lessons. They want to hear sweet words. The Bible tells you that many times. In fact, they told our people in the Old Testament, they told the prophets that, listen, don't teach us what's right. Teach us smooth things. We want to hear smooth things. Don't come in here with any judgment. Don't come in here with any self-reflection, okay? Just tell us that Jesus loves us and uh, we're going to rule over Edomites. <laughs> See? You can find that all throughout the Bible that our people never like these type of lessons. See, when you when you when you have no problem with this kind of lesson, it's showing your growth. Because why? You should be happy that the Most High is using the Bible to reveal something in you that you can change. Not try to conceal it and hide it and clutch it and cover it. No. This lesson is for me. There's something that he's speaking to me about that I know I haven't, you know, I haven't submitted. This is where we are. This is how you take that next step. Yes, it's good knowing you're Israel or, or, or even knowing that you're a Gentile, right? It's good knowing that Christ and these people are people of color and all that. It's good knowing about the dietary law. It's good knowing Jeremiah 10. Christmas is pagan. That's good. But there's a higher level. For even Gentiles. See, and that's putting your own self in subjection. We have to learn to separate, you know, how we feel in what we do. Because we're in that age where I don't feel like it. I don't feel this way. Or I feel that way. We're being controlled by our feelings. Especially our brothers. Our brothers, you know, 
are we really brothers really have to get this together because I'm seeing an, uh, you know I'm I'm seeing an epidemic amongst our nation where the men are emotional. They're more emotional than the women, and I don't you know I, I I'm sure it's because a lot of us grew up with mom. You know, because we're under that curse where fathers would be leaving. So we as men have learned how to respond to things as mom would respond. Why? Because there was no man there to teach me how to respond as a man. So we're not faulting, you know, anybody. But listen, it's high time to waken out of sleep. Something is going on, especially with black men in their emotions. We have to really, we really have to get that down. Because that's why we kill each other. Because emotion, somebody, you disrespect me, dog. I'm going to kill you. See? Emotional. You can't have an emotional leader. Christ told us that. When Peter got in his emotions, when Christ said, well, listen, the son of man, I have to be crucified. He said, no, Christ, don't leave. He said, Satan, I rebuke you. Get behind me, Satan. He called Peter Satan to his face. He didn't say you're acting like it. He didn't say you're acting like it. Satan. He said you were Satan. Why? Because anytime you get emotional, what happens? The spirits start to control you. Anytime you get emotional. Listen, brothers and sisters, something I learned. I, I, please use this. Your emotions and your, your flesh are connected. Anytime your emotions get roused up, your flesh get roused up with it. They just hold hands and leap together. Anytime you're emotional, your flesh is connected. I, I'm telling you. So you have to really watch that. We're going to go to Philippians 3 and 7. Uh, and then we'll go to Luke 13 and 24. We're here at Philippians, the third chapter, the seventh and eighth verse, and it reads, But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yeah, doubtless. And I can count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. Brothers and sisters, here Paul provides us with an illustration of his pursuit towards salvation. These two verses are Paul's personal salvation testimony. I'm going to read it again for you. Philippians, the third chapter, the seventh and eighth verse, and it reads, But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yeah, doubtless. And I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. So counting everything lost in order to gain is one of the central lessons of genuine salvation found all over Scripture. According to the text, the gospel demands our allegiance in following Christ above all things. Paul was breaking it down here. 
Paul was breaking it down. He said, I counted all things lost to win Christ. I know I'm going to have to sacrifice. I'm going to have to sacrifice in order to gain. Submitting to the Lordship of Christ, according to the text, requires sacrifice. He said, you have to lay down your life and pick up your cross. Too many of us are trying to, or trying to live our life, what we want to do, and follow Christ. It's impossible. He's not going to let you get in with all this baggage. Where you're trying to carry your stuff in and, you know, follow Christ and pick up a cross. It's not going to work. You have to lay down what you want to do. Those dreams and aspirations that you have. And follow what he have for you. He have a purpose for you greater than what you want for yourself. He said that. He said that in the Old Testament. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. I have an expected end of good for you. Not evil. We're going to Luke 13 and 24. I'm going to read 24 through 28. Luke 13 and 24 reads, Strive to enter in at the gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. So the first thing we notice, brothers and sisters, is the word strive. If you're looking here with me at Luke 13 and 24, listen again. The 24th verse reads, strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter and shall not be able. So brothers and sisters, the word strive is implying a agonizing, intense, purposeful struggle, right? So you get the idea of great effort when you see that word strive. Let me read 25. The 25th verse of the 13th chapter in Luke reads, When once the master of the house is risen up and have shut to the door, and ye begin to, and ye begin to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us, and he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence you are. Then shall ye begin to say, We've eaten and drunk in thy presence. Thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not whence you are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom and you yourselves thrust out. So here we're reading a warning against any false security or false hope of salvation that we may possess, brothers and sisters. What we saw is there will be many standing outside of the shut door who were deceived into thinking that they were going to make it. See? It says that, let me read it. Look at verse 26. Verse 26 reads, Then shall ye begin to say, We have eaten and drunken in thy presence. Thou hast taught in our streets. What does that mean? It's, people are going to say, listen, we celebrated the feast. We celebrated the Passover. Right? We celebrated, quote unquote, Hanukkah or Feast of Dedication. We celebrated Purim. See, that's when it says we have eaten and drinking in your presence. That's talking about celebrating feasts. Look at the second part of that, though. It says, 
Then shall ye begin to say, We have eaten and drunken in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. So that's the equivalent of saying we attend the church regularly. We listen to the word. See? Saying the right things is not enough. Many will say, Lord, Lord. Just hearing the word is not enough. They were saying, you know, in this text, you taught us in our streets. We listen to your teaching. So we see that what? Just listening to the word coming to church means nothing. It means nothing really. To the most high. Keeping of the holy days of the Old Testament cannot save you. There's another level, brothers and sisters. Submission. We have to find ourselves on that path. Because why? Salvation is submission. And without submission, I don't care how many scriptures you know. I don't care if you're uh, the blackest Jew that came off the slave ships today. You're not getting in. You're not. That's including me, brothers and sisters. First and foremost. We're going to end it here. 1 Corinthians 16 and 22. 1 Corinthians 16 and 22 reads, If any man love not the Lord Christ, let him be anathema. That word anathema, brothers and sisters, means cursed. Look at that. Some versions like the NIVs and different versions, ESVs, they say cursed. But in the King James, it says anathema, which means to be cursed. So I'll just speak the, in order to not be a barbarian unto my people, I'll just read the word, what it, what it actually means. 1 Corinthians 16 and 22, and it reads, if any man love not the Lord Christ, let him be cursed. So, brothers and sisters, the difference between genuine believers and unbelievers is submission. The author teaches that non-compliance with the Lordship of Christ results in a curse. When you obey him, you're acknowledging his Lordship and submitting to his authority. So it says, if you don't love the Lord Christ, not the Savior, but the Lord. <laughs> if you don't love his Lordship, if you don't love submission, because he's Savior, you don't need to submit there. Right? Because he did something for you. See, we don't want to do anything. Savior was, I died for you. Lord means, you do what I tell you. See the difference? Brothers and sisters, I... The Most High said that because we've continued to be disobedient, he would send a strong delusion. And I pray, I pray that you brothers and sisters who stumbled upon this broadcast, really do a self-audit, really do a self-examination. Because there's another level that we have to go to. And what I found, brothers and sisters, when I studied our history, the history of the Israelites, the people in the Old Testament, they followed the law. So if they followed the law, they didn't eat pork and all this stuff. Why did they go into slavery? See, it's something greater than that law. And it's the personal law within yourself. Everyone in the Old Testament knew they were Jews and Israelites. They all knew that. And we still went into slavery. 
We serve, you know, the Persians, the Medes, the Babylonians, the Greeks. Now we're serving the Romans. And all these people knew they were Israel. So you knowing that you're Israel, if you are Israel, that's not going to save you. That doesn't make you any better or any worse. The only thing that means is that you're going to be judged harsher and quicker. That's all that means. Paul told us that what judgment goes to the Jews first, <laughs> to the Israelites. So when we do wrong, we get reprimanded quickly. When Gentiles do wrong, they get away with it for, for hundreds of years. Not you. If they want to eat pork and all that, so be it. Because why? The law was given to our fathers. Now, would I suggest that they do that? Absolutely not. What I would suggest for a Gentile who follows our churches, those laws that you're seeing in the Bible, I, I think you should follow those. Because especially if you've seen them and know them, because to do anything other than that, after you've known the truth and to, you know, purposely disobey, then you're going to have to answer for that. You're going to have to answer for that. Brothers and sisters, the title of today's lesson is Salvation is Submission. Today we highlighted the difference between the Saviorhood of Christ in the Lordship. Brothers and sisters, I, I beseech you, submit to his Lordship. I want to say, Kwam Yasharala, sin no more.